Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, November 5th, 2010. This week, episode 186 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. It's my pleasure to do the show with you, Joe. Always a pleasure, Cliff. And at the controls, our engineer, Austin Powers. Allow myself to introduce myself. My name is Austin Danger Powers. Danger is my middle name. Good day, Danger. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question, an interview with attorney Stephen John Fellman. We'll have our halftime. We're also going to have Glenn Fellman, our regular contributor from IE Connections What's News, uh, assisting us with the interview and answering some questions as well on some association legal issues. Of course, we'll have our halftime and then the roundup with Dr. Dietrich Wow. We've been adding and updating a blog every week to the IAQ Radio website. Check it out at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine. Your them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, to contact the show, and, and I got a couple texts here that, um, you know, the, the sound on the music does come a little fuzzy on live, but when you download later, it's, it's excellent, and uh, so we'll do our best to get through that, and if you contact us, you can go to iaqradio.com, just follow the link that says go to the show, and then either sign in using your word password, or you can just sign in as a guest. You can also download the show afterwards from iTunes or from our website. You can listen live from our website. Don't forget, we also have those ABIH certification maintenance points, IICRC continuing education credits, and ACAC renewal credits. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com, and we'll send you a quiz and get you set up for those renewal credits. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text it in via your computer. Congratulations! To John Lapotere, MicroShield Environmental Services in Winter Springs, Florida, for being the first person to answer last week's trivia question by identifying trade associations meeting the Eternal Revenue Code Section 501c6 as being exempted from federal income tax. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for 
Friday, November 5th, 2010, has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the Indoor Air Quality's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Cochrane & Associates has created IEQ TV, the IEQ Video Network, the industry's portal for news and information related to indoor air quality issues. IEQ TV is the place to be. Visit them at IEQTV.com. Now for this week's trivia question. In which state's Naugatuck Valley was America's first trade association founded? Back hmm. to you, Joe. Good one as always, Cliff. Okay, today we've got Mr. Stephen John Fellman. Uh, Mr. Fellman is a trade regulation attorney specializing in representing nonprofit organizations and corporate clients in a wide variety of different antitrust, competition, corporate governance, and public policy related issues. He has defended trade associations and corporate clients in the Federal Trade Commission, Department of Justice, and private treble damage actions in courts throughout the country. Attorney Fellman serves as general counsel for associations in the construction industry, laundry industry, professional services industry, insurance industry, and financial services industry. He serves as a special counsel for many associations, including those in the motion picture, theater industry, healthcare industry, and indoor environment industry. Mr. Fellman has taught association law to association executives uh, at ASAE seminars and the Institute for Organization Management, sponsored by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and has appeared as an expert panelist on the American Society of Association Executives program called All the Legal Questions You Wanted to Know and Were Afraid to Ask and the Board Meeting. In our areas of interest, Mr. Fellman and his firm currently provide legal services to groups such as the ACGIH, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Association of Union Constructors. I believe we have some intro music. This is the sound of one voice When people are one voice A song for every one of us This is the sound of one voice This is the sound of one voice Okay, that's one voice, and we'll get the author out for those of you that are interested. We're also going to have on today's show Mr. Glenn Fellman, President of Association and Communications Management Group, which is the association management company serving the Indoor Air Quality Association, the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization, and most recently the Restoration Industry Association. And we look forward to having our regular contributor, Glenn, and uh, a close friend and uh, relative of his, Stephen John Fellman. Uh, do we have you on the line? Well, we've got to unmute uh, Mr. Fellman, IAQ Guest 1, and IAQ Paul. Hello, John. Steve, do we have you on the line? Well, Attorney thank you for inviting me. Uh, thanks for having Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it. Um, Attorney Fellman, and then we've got, I, I might as well be uh, open with the viewers, your son, Glenn Fellman. Glenn, do we have you on the line? No, he's my son. I'm the elder. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, whatever whatever way you guys want it, you're our guest. We'll put it whatever way you well. like. Uh Mr. Fellman, what are the most common forms of association? So what, you know, let's, let's start with the basics. What are the most common forms of associations that indoor air quality, disaster restoration, and, you know, building science type organizations, how are they formed? Well, usually you have two main types of associations. First would be a trade association. And that would be an association of businesses that are uh, getting together to exchange information to basically uh, combine their efforts to make them stronger competitors. Um, businesses in a certain industry may want to get together to be able to lobby the government, to do research and development, to learn how to improve their products or develop educational programs for their people. Uh, they may be interested in certification or accreditation. That's on one side. The other side would be professional societies. These are individuals such as they could be doctors, lawyers, bankers, whatever they are, uh, forming organizations of individuals who are interested in professional development. Um, 
Beyond those two, there are charitable organizations, religious organizations, educational organizations, which goes on and on. But trade associations and professional societies would be your basic two largest groups. Okay. And do these associations always have to be democratic? Uh, democratic is an interesting word. Uh, I like to say controlled democracy is the best. Uh, they don't have to be democratic at all. Uh, they operate pursuant to a state statute, which sets up what they call requirements to incorporate. And as long as they have met the requirements of the statute, the amount of democracy they have is based on whatever bylaws they create. For instance, you can have an association which has a board of directors that elect, re-elect, and continue themselves and members that have no vote. On the other hand, you can have a association where all the members vote on most of the issues. So the amount of democracy that you have depends upon the nature of the organization itself. Let me ask a, a follow-up to that. I've always been curious that, you know, I, I used to be on the board of the Indoor Air Quality Association. Cliff's been on several boards. And I'm curious, uh, from an, uh, an expert in, in association legal matters, which takes precedence, the, the bylaws or the Articles of Incorporation, or does neither take precedence? No, the Articles of Incorporation take precedence. Uh, you can explain it this way. The Articles of Incorporation are like the skeleton, and the bylaws are the flesh that you put on that skeleton. But the Articles of Incorporation are the ones that govern. And frankly, many associations forget that. And an example of a problem that could be created, let's say your articles of incorporation say that you will have four officers, a president, a vice president, a secretary, and a treasurer. And people forget about the articles and start working on the bylaws, and someone says, well, we need to have three vice presidents. So they pass a bylaw amendment that says they have now three vice presidents. Uh, and all of a sudden they come to a board meeting and someone stands up and says, you know, I just read the articles. The articles said we only have one vice president. How can we have three vice presidents? And the answer is you can't. The articles control. Excellent. Cliff? Okay. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Mr. Feldman. What legal facts about trade associations are association members most unaware of? What are most associations un, un, most unaware of? No, what legal facts about trade associations are most association members most often unaware of? I think most association members are unaware of what their own bylaws say. <laughs> uh, I find that uh, well, in our office we represent over 75 different trade associations and professional societies. And the experience is that the majority of the members of most of these organizations pay dues and really don't pay much of attention as to how the organization operates, uh, what do the bylaws say. Uh, most of them don't even join committees. And I think that uh, a lot of them are, when you come down and talk to them, they haven't been invited to do something, and therefore there's either whether they're shy or they don't think they have the time or whatever. Uh, I would say the, the thing that most of them don't understand is that if they can get involved in the association, they can learn so much and better themselves as professionals and business people. It, it's not so much of a legal issue as, as the ability to get involved and all they have to do is make a phone call to someone like Glenn, who's serving as an executive director or executive vice president of the association, and say, hey, I'm a new member. I'd like to be involved. What committees could I serve on? That's, that's where I think education needs to go. Is a follow-up question. What legal facts about trade associations would the association's officers and board members be unaware of? I think the officers and board members often don't understand that they are fiduciaries, that they're responsible for operating that association in accord with its legal bylaws and articles of incorporation. They have to know what the articles and bylaws say, 
And as board members, they're responsible for making sure that the way they operate the association complies with both the articles and the bylaws. They also should have an idea as to uh, what the association's finances are about. They should take the time to really examine financial statements and make sure that uh, they're meeting their responsibilities as fiduciaries with regard to the money that the association has. And the last point, I think that they have to be aware of conflict of interest issues. Do they have a conflict of interest? What is a conflict of interest? And most associations now have conflict of interest policies, and board members are asked to sign off at least once a year uh, on disclosure statements with regard to potential real and actual conflicts. Let me, uh, let's bring Glenn in for just a minute. Glenn, I just want to, you know, we've gone for about five, seven minutes here on association issues, and I wanted to ask you if you had anything you wanted to add to what we just talked about. Well, I do. Um, you know, we, we often talk in association management about the, the three percenters, and that's the three percent of the association members who do uh, 90% of the heavy lifting for the organization. And so, uh, what uh, Steve just said is absolutely true. Uh, you know, members have the ability to um, gain a lot professionally and personally by becoming involved with an association, and they often don't see that, um, or they're afraid to knock on the doors um, that they would need to knock on to get into a committee or to get involved in a leadership position. And then the other point uh, is the fiduciary. I want to talk about is the fiduciary responsibilities of directors. I know with, with uh, the Indoor Air Quality Association, uh, several years ago we began a, a practice of holding a new director orientation session. And so when someone was elected to the board, we'd bring them, we'd bring them down to uh, the headquarters office and they spend two days with staff and they go over a myriad of issues. But one of the things we talk about with them is fiduciary duty. And they're very often surprised by, you know, what they've gotten themselves into, quite, quite frankly. Uh, and so fiduciary responsibilities are something that I find uh, time and again board members uh, it's, don't – it's not that they ignore them. They just don't understand them, and there hasn't been anyone around to teach them what, what those responsibilities really mean. And back, back to uh, Steve, what – could you give us another example of a, a fiduciary responsibility, maybe something that the listeners can grasp uh, onto that oftentimes board members aren't aware of? Yeah, let's say uh, we have a board meeting and uh, someone makes a proposal to the board and the board wants to debate it, which they do. They have an active debate. And... Um, Let's say we have a board of 10 people. Seven people think it's a good idea. Three people uh, don't like it. One of the three really is violently opposed. But uh, everybody has their say. They debate the issue. Then they have a vote, and it passes 10 to 3. The guy who really is upset uh, sends out a newsletter or a news or an email to all of his friends and says, you know, we had this board meeting. And board member A said this, board member B said this, board member C said this, and this is what happened. And basically uh, describes everything and all the, all the discussion at the board meeting. Uh, now, that, that's a, a violation of his responsibility. He has a, an obligation to maintain confidentiality. And what he's doing is he's affecting the financial status of the association because people could say, hey, what the hell is going on here? You know, maybe what we ought to do is drop from the association. So essentially he's also breaching his fiduciary responsibility. Now that's not saying that he doesn't have the right to present his position, but he doesn't have the right to sit there as a member of the board and breach front, uh, fiduciary responsibility or confidentiality. That's the kind of a problem. Okay. What about let's let's talk a little bit about members and, and what types of rights members have and what what rights they don't have. And I, I understand some associations have members and others don't. Let's take for instance, uh, one of our sponsors is the Indoor Air Quality Association, and Glenn's the executive director. What types of rights do the members of a trade association have? 
Well, the, the rights of a member would be established in the bylaws. And so, for instance, some associations say members have the right to elect officers. Some associations, the bylaws say members only have the right to elect directors, and the directors elect officers. So you have to look at the bylaws of each association and see what right is established. Also, uh, each state has a nonprofit corporation statute. And the nonprofit corporation statute for each state uh, has a section that deals with rights of members. So depending upon what state you're incorporated in, you can look at that and see what the rights of members are. Uh, but there's, there's no general rule that says in all associations members have this right or that right. It depends upon what the bylaws say and what the uh, statute says. Would that be the same for associations that don't necessarily have members? There are associations that just have people who are certificate holders or people that are just, um, uh, they call them registrants. We had the uh, president of the IICRC on last week, and I, I, that's an unusual structure there, so we won't go into that. But we have a group um, that most of our listeners are familiar with, the ACAC, and they have uh, certificate holders. And would it be the same, whatever is in the bylaws, or what their rights are as certificate holders? Right. They may have contractual responsibilities also as certificate holders. If, if, for instance, I'm in an accreditation organization, there may be a contract between each person who has a certificate and the organization as to what that means. Uh, but the bylaws would be one thing, and any contractual obligation would be another. Would the contractual obligation go both ways? Is there, a, you know, I'm familiar with, for instance, there's a... Um, Oh, I forget what we call it, but it's, you know, like the rules of conduct, I believe it's called, that I sign to be a certificate holder. Would Should there be something that the association also pre presents to us as certificate holders with what their responsibilities are? The question is, there are two questions. One question is, should there be something? And the other question is, is there actually something? And I don't know if there is anything that's a actual uh, agreement where the, where the uh, organization has agreed to give you anything. I assume that as a certificate holder, for instance, you're entitled to get a certificate. Uh, and so you get some sort of a document from the organization. And the the basic contract would be a contract that says that uh, if you meet these criteria uh, and pass the test, you get a certificate. And the organization may also agree to promote the certificate, depending upon, you know, again, what the agreement is and what the terms are. Uh, what else it could do or should do, um, you know, is, is the... If, for instance, that certificate is being used by state uh, governments in terms of uh, uh, permitting people to work and establishing some sort of a system whereby uh, only people who have uh, some type of a certificate can get a license in that state, uh, then the organization may have a responsibility to deal with the state people and answer questions with regard to the certificate. But each organization will be different. Can I, can I ask a question? Uh, I'm just going to call it the afterthought question. I think a lot of organizations, professional associations, get involved with a certificate. And once you have the certificate, you know, you pay your fee, you, you, you meet the criteria, you go to the course, you pass the paper, you meet with the code of ethics, and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, the association comes up with this fundraising idea that, well, if we have continuing education requirements, if we have renewal requirements, uh, you know, have they essentially changed the deal with the certificate holder if he wasn't informed of that at the beginning? Well, yeah, I can tell you, but just look at the legal profession. When I first started practicing law, um, you took an exam, and if you passed an exam, uh, you were admitted to the bar. 
And that was an exam that uh, initially was an exam run by a bar association that was not affiliated with the government. Uh, later on, uh, the government got concerned that just because someone took an exam and a period of two years go by, five years go by, ten years go by, that person may not be qualified. So the government stepped in and started regulating these kinds of things and saying that uh, you had to have continuing education. Uh, in some areas, you have to take an additional exam periodically. And uh, again, you know, whether that's a... Yeah, people who, uh, you know, teach courses or people who give uh, recertification programs um, are going to generate income from that. But uh, if it's reasonable, generally those things have been supported. Okay, good. Thank you. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about management of associations. And, and I, I know there are different ways that people can manage the association. You can have people that you hire as the uh, staff on, you know, on board as your staff, and you can also hire out a management company similar to what Glenn's company does for several organizations. I'm just curious, what, what type of income would be somewhat standard within the industry? I mean, I guess based on a percentage of your, your gross revenues or something like that. I don't really that. mean income, probably compensation. Or compensation, would yeah. Probably be what, a better that'd word. be a better word. You mean, how do you decide how much you're going to pay your management company? Yes. I think the question is, what is your management company going to do for you? And the, the agreement between the association and the management company should be a contractual agreement and should specify so that each side understands exactly what's going to happen. Uh, there are some associations, for instance, that all they want is lobbying services. And so they'll hire uh, a management company to basically, you know, check the legislature in one state and provide management services. Otherwise, they'll manage themselves. So that kind of an association, uh, depending upon what other things it does, the management company may have a, a smaller percentage of income. On the other hand, you may have an association that says to the management company, we want you to do everything. We want you to do legislative work. We want you to do meeting planning. We want you to do education. We want you to run our board meetings. We want you to run our certification program. Uh, we want you to set up an industry-wide insurance program. And the list goes on and on and on. And at that point, obviously, the association management company is going to take a much larger percentage of the income. There are other organizations that even uh, tell the association management company, look, uh, we get this amount of dues. This is the size of our association. If you can grow our association either by adding additional members or by uh, creating new programs that are going to generate non-dues income, you know, we'll pay you a percentage of what you bring in. Uh, we'll give you an incentive. So... It goes all the way across the board. There, there's no, you know, standard percentage. Uh, I think ASAE publishes some ratio studies. I was just going to chime in on that. Yeah. The American Society of Association Executives, uh, you got to be careful of this show. If you if you don't say the full name of the organization, you just say the acronym, yep. sometimes you get the acronym police, and the siren goes off, and you're in big trouble, you get a ticket. Okay. So be careful. Of that. The American <laughs> Society of Association Executives puts out uh, uh, something called the uh, Operating Ratio Report, where they conduct surveys of hundreds of associations, and then they categorize the results by the type of organization, whether it's a C3 or a C6, and by its budget, you know, usually by about million-dollar increments. And I spend a lot of time with that book so that I can see, you know, what associations typically spend for general and administrative costs. As you know, just kind of a, a ballpark range. Uh, typically, an association that's using a management company, and that is basically getting a full range of services. You know, all the things they do are running through their headquarters office. You can see management fees that will um, vary anywhere from about 35% of gross revenue 
up to 45 or even 50 percent of gross revenue. And uh, that's proven out uh, to be true pretty much year after year. As this, I've, I've got, I think, three editions of the operating ratio report on my bookshelf, and that 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 range is held true for for several decades. The uh, the alternative, uh, when you have an association that doesn't use a management company but just has you know full time staff and you know they're employees of the association only, generally their their general administrative costs are higher, and that's borne out again through these studies. But those types of organizations often pay you know in excess of fifty percent of gross revenue to cover their general administrative costs, especially if they have annual budgets of let's say two or two and a half million or less. The larger the organization, you have a $10 million budget or a $15 million budget, then you can typically uh, just have your own captive staff and office and lease equipment through the association, and that is a, an economical model. But for groups like under that two and a half, maybe $3 million threshold, an association management company typically will be more, more economical. Okay, thank you, Glenn. And uh, Steve, we're going to take a break. We just have to thank our sponsors. We're going to come right back, though. This is uh, an excellent conversation. I'd like to thank the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA. They're the leading authority for information on heating, ventilation, air conditioning, inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. And the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. We also wish to thank our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.org. Com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. And of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, a newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at John Don, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of our show when you inquire about their products and services. All right, let's uh, bring back attorney Steve Fellman and uh, Glenn Fellman, talk a little bit more about association legal issues here, and uh, thanks for the comments on the, on the uh, chat room here. But I'd like to move from association management fees to another question that comes up from time to time within the association business, and that is, if you've got an association, and let's just say it's uh, like Glenn was talking about in the one to two and a half million dollar a year range, what type of reserves should a group like that hold? Is there a standard number or is there, um, again, this is all over the place? Well, I'll, I'll give you my, my opinion. I, I advise my clients that they should have a minimum of, of uh, one year's operating budget in reserves depending on the size of the organization, that may not always be feasible, um, but no less than, than six months operating budgets and reserves. And I also advise my clients to be exceptionally conservative with how they manage those funds, because those, those funds don't belong to the board, they don't belong to the management company, they belong to the members. And uh, you know, I, I was very fortunate during the recession that uh, the, comp uh, the, the associations I represent had their uh, reserves in certificates of deposit. And so while they did lose the interest income, they didn't lose the dollars. And I have colleagues who's, who are in the association industry who, who had put their association reserves into riskier investment funds and had lost a considerable amount of the association's uh, reserves as a result during the 2008-2009. Uh, you know, I think Glenn is right. Uh, the IRS has some guidelines with regard to associations, and generally uh, an association with one year's operating budget reserves is fine. 
if the association's reserves grow significantly higher, uh, then a question comes up as to whether or not the income that those reserves uh, generate is unrelated business income and subject to tax. But if you had one or even two years reserves, uh, rather two years uh, income as, as reserves, I don't think you have a problem. Um, the the question of investment of association funds is, is also uh, interesting. When uh, the Madoff uh, event was announced and we saw uh, many charities and other organizations had invested money with Madoff and lost it all. Uh, I think that you really need to have a very, very conservative investment policy for associations. And what Glenn has described is a policy which it doesn't generate a lot of income, but on the other hand, you know, your dollars stay there and you don't be afraid of losses. Okay. Um, I want to ask a question about the association's records, their their bylaws, their tax returns, etc. And I, I realize this may be different depending on different types of associations, but how, how open must those records be? I mean, if, if I'm an association member, can I call my association uh, headquarters and ask for a copy of last year's income tax return, for, for example? Well, the rule says that the uh, Form 990, which is the association income tax return, has to be available in the association offices for inspection. So if you're a member, I don't care if you're a member or not a member, uh, anyone should be able to go into the association offices and look at the 990. You're not entitled to get it sent to you. But associations should develop, you know, a what I call a reasonable practice program, so that if a if a member uh, calls, first of all, members certainly should be entitled to look at the audit from corporations and the bylaws. And if someone has a, a need to know, you know, there's no reason why the association shouldn't make copies and send it to them. Uh, if all of a sudden you got uh, most associations today, just put it on on the website. And then you can refer to the website, and, and that's the only access that you need to provide. Uh, minutes of meetings, I think minutes of board meetings um, should also, as a general rule, uh, be available to members. But uh, there may be certain things that the board discussed that they want to discuss in conference, and they can have an executive session. I'm a believer in openness and transparency for associations. That's a, you know that leads to another question. I I get a lot of calls from people who are interested in learning more about indoor air quality, and they want to you know they go online and they've done a bunch of research. And there's you know if you pull up uh, for instance mold training, you'll probably get I don't know fifty or you know at least ten let's say hits for different what people call associations that provide this type of training. And there's times, Steve, when I just, you know, I'll go to their website because obviously they're somebody that I'm interested in learning more about, and I can't find anything on their website about where they're incorporated at, uh, who the board of directors is, where the bylaws are, anything like that. I, at times I can't even figure out what state they're in. So I'm curious what kind of advice would you give someone who's interested in learning more about these associations and, and the roots of the associations if you run into a situation like that where there's not much available on the web? Well, I, th I think that they, you certainly should be cautious if you can't find out much about the group. Um, if you have an address for them, you can generally contact the state corporation office in the state in which they're op operating. Uh, if you're doing business in any state, uh, you have to file uh, a, a form that uh, gives you a permit to do business in the state. For instance, you could be an association and be incorporated in Illinois and you have an office in Virginia. You would have to have a business uh, license to operate in Virginia. So that, that information... Uh, is generally available to the public by calling the state corporation council in the uh, location where the association has an office, and it will show you 
uh, name of the corporation, usually where it was incorporated, and current uh, officers and directors. Okay. So that, that information you should be able to find. If you can't find that kind of information, the less information that you can find, the more concerned I would become. Okay, good advice for listeners. Yeah, Cliff? Let, let's, uh, let, let's change subjects. Let's talk a little bit about standards writing organizations. Uh, Steve, what types of risks and liabilities exist for a standards writing organization? Well, standards writing organizations uh, are generally, you know, organizations of volunteers that get together everybody and they write standards. Uh, there's an antitrust violation that's a, or antitrust risk anytime you get involved in a standard proceeding. Uh, because what you do, when you write a standard, uh, generally those who can comply with the standard uh, can do business. Those who don't comply with the standard don't do business. So initially you have a situation where there's a potential of being excluding, uh, of, of excuse me, the antitrust law said basically you can't have a contract combination or conspiracy to restrain trade. And if a group of competitors get together and say, okay, here's the rules, only those who comply with these rules, in other words, the people who get certified, can do business, and those others can't, you know, that's a potential combination conspiracy to restrain trade. And so there's a big antitrust risk when you set up any kind of a standard or certification program. Uh, the, there have been several Supreme Court cases that dealt with this problem. And, uh, one of the, one of the questions is what kind of a standards organization is it? Is it a consensus standard organization? Or is it an organization that sets up standards with just interested parties involved? A consensus standard is usually set up, uh, where everybody who's involved whether they're a manufacturer or a material supplier, professional uh, or consumer or academic, everybody has equal opportunity to sit at the table, and the only standards that come out are standards that come out when consensus is reached by everybody. Other organizations uh, can set standards by experts, and those organizations have to really be concerned that what they're doing uh, is reasonable and not designed for anti-competitive purposes. Let's follow up for just a minute with Glenn on that, because I know, Glenn, you're now managing a standards writing organization and uh, essentially a trade association, and, and I believe you've got another one now that you may want to talk about that probably does a little bit of both. I don't know, but um, how is it different with respect to managing these groups when you have to deal with one that writes standards or one that's, uh, say, a membership organization or both? Um, great question. And uh, just to clarify, I, I represent the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Indoor Air Quality Association is a, a nonprofit, 501c6, and it has a subsidiary corporation, a wholly owned subsidiary, which is also a 501c6, and that's the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization also known as IESO. IESO is accredited by the American National Standards Institute, ANSI, as an accredited standards developer. And I think what makes um, a standards writing organization very, very different than uh, a traditional trade organization is that you now have a whole new set of rules to play by. Uh, ANSI has uh, what are called the essential requirements which are rules under which you develop uh, consensus-based industry standards. And if you don't follow those rules, you will not get your standard approved as an American national standard. And in addition to the ANSI essential requirements to become accredited, you have to write standard operating procedures. Uh, IESOs are about 20 pages long that define exactly how you set standards, how you ensure that there's no dominance, um, how you avoid some of the legal pitfalls uh, that Steve was speaking about earlier. And I think that's one of the, one of the real challenges with a standard-setting body is helping the volunteers understand that, you know, it's not just the bylaws, it's ju not just the Articles of Incorporation, it's, it's a, wh a whole other set of third-party rules that you have to follow if you're going to be successful in setting those standards. Uh, another difference I find with standard-setting bodies is that 
um, the volunteer commitment is typically larger on a long-term basis. To develop an American national standard often takes two, three, four, maybe even five years. And we have committees that meet once a week or every other week for years before their standards are actually published. So, you know, that kind of a commitment is different than, say, being on the convention committee of an association where you have conference calls, you know, once a month, and then as you get closer to the convention, maybe, you know, a little more frequently, and the convention ends, and you take a breather for four or five months. So it's a, it's a significant, you know, variation there. Now, recently, I've, I've started to do some work with the Restoration Industry Association, RIA, and uh, right now our company is providing executive management services to the organization. And RIA has done an interesting thing. They wanted to set standards for uh, cleaning and restoration, but they didn't want to go through the expense and time of becoming an ANSI-accredited standards uh, body. So what they've done is they've turned to other ANSI members, uh, IESO, and, um, and, and, and talking to some other groups too, and they've said, hey, you know, we have ideas for standards. Can we produce them in conjunction with you, but under your accredited uh, program? And uh, in the case of RIA and IESO, they were able to come to an agreement, and uh, they've developed one standard that um, just completed a peer review process, and now it's back in committee and is likely to get published in the next couple months. And now uh, they're working on a second standard for fire damage restoration, uh, and likewise, they're you know they're working in cooperation. So the accredited standards developer is IESO, but the majority of the volunteers uh, are coming from the other organization, and they're working in partnership. Okay, well, thanks for that. And um, I, I want to switch gears just a little bit because we're running a little low on time, and I have some specific questions I know Dr. Wow will be interested in, um, and, and probably Cliff as well. The American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. My understanding is, I, I don't know, Steve, if you were their attorney or, or assisted them, and, and I know they've been sued of, at least once and maybe a few times. Can we use that as an example of how and why an association gets sued? Uh, I don't necessarily, you know, I, I've been a big uh backer of the ACGIH for years, but I'm just curious, why have they been sued and how did things come out? Sure, I'll be glad to go into that. Now, uh, just so everybody knows, uh, we are counsel for ACGIH and we defended ACGIH in litigation, uh, which ACGIH won, uh, but was very expensive. The, the, the reason is this, ACGIH is a scientific organization and ACGIH publishes something which everybody's familiar with, with TLDs and BEIs. But the concept behind the TLD and a BEI is unlike uh, an OSHA uh, OEL in that the TLDs and the BEIs don't say that if you're exposed at this level, uh, you're in danger. What ACGIH does is it sets up a committee of independent scientific experts who evaluate peer-reviewed literature and say on the basis of the peer-reviewed literature that we can find, if your average typical worker is only exposed at this level, it'll be safe. Now, we're not saying that if they're exposed at a higher level, it's necessarily dangerous. But we're at, what we are saying is that if your exposure level is only at this level, we think it's safe. Now, many manufacturers, uh, business operators who have their workers exposed to various substances in the workplace look for some way of not only protecting the worker, but protecting the employer from, you know, class action litigation by workers claiming that they're being placed in an unsafe environment. So they look at the ACGIH TLVs which is designed only to be guidelines for industrial hygienists and not standards. And they say, well, you know, if ACGIH says at this level we're safe, uh, you know, we don't want to go at a level uh, that's higher that, than that level where we may be uh, um, causing potential harm for our workers. So this protects our workers and it protects us. With that background, uh, there are... Uh, certain interests in the mining area, 
certain manufacturers of chemical substances that say, you know, this isn't helping us to have an, an organization put out a, a, a TLV or something like that, even though it's only guidance for industrial hygienists, because it's cutting down the sale of our products. And our products, we think, are not dangerous at a level higher than that. And so uh, they decided that uh, National Mining Conference and several other groups, they would sue ACGIH. And ACGIH defended the issue, and they were really in a constitutional issue. It's a First Amendment issue. And the First Amendment says that you have a right to publish a scientific opinion. And you don't have to be right about it. All you have to do is not be malicious about it and have generally a, a reasonable basis for saying what you're saying. In fact, in certain instances, you don't even have to have a reasonable basis. Uh, but the courts found that ACGH did have a reasonable basis for saying what they were saying. And what the court did, especially in the last suits that were pending, uh, they did, they granted summary judgment for ACGIH, which basically said that after months and months of discovery and the exchange of all sorts of scientific documents, the plaintiffs who were suing ACGIH uh, weren't even entitled to go into court. That a matter of law, based on these documents, ACGIH had the exact right to say what it said, and those cases were dismissed. Uh, and the, the cost of defending yourself in this kind of litigation is uh, very, very high. But at the same time, you know, you have to commend an organization that basically are uh, scientists who are sitting down and publishing information that will be beneficial to the uh, health of all workers. Can I ask a question? Sure. Yeah. You talked about how expensive these lawsuits are. Do associations insurance typically cover these costs, the defense costs? Uh, yes. Associate, well, associations can buy insurance, which will cover the cost of the defense of this type of litigation. And the associations that are involved in standard making or certification should purchase insurance that will protect them from legal expenses that are involved in the event that they're sued. Now, some associations don't disclose the fact that they are writing standards or doing certification when they apply for insurance. Then they find out uh, when a claim is made, that the carrier says that, well, you didn't disclose that this is what you were doing, so you're not protected. I think that in applications for insurance, associations that write standards of due certification just specifically disclose what they're doing and get some sort of either a binder uh, or some specific uh, uh, written document that... Uh, states that the association is protected uh, for legal expenses and also damages in this area. Let me, before the uh, acronym police get back from the donut shop here, we had the uh, TLVs, which are threshold limit values, and B right. BEIs, which are biological exposure indices, and um, we also mentioned OELs, I think, occupational exposure limits. You're right. Okay. Just want to make sure we clarified that before we get Dr. Wow on here for the roundup. Um, and so, sorry, guys. That's all right. We appreciate you being here, number one. And let's uh, – I've got a couple follow-ups, but let's go to the roundup real quick and see if we can get a quick comment from Dr. Wow. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Uh, see if we can get Dr. Wow on the line here. We've got you here? unmuted. Hello, Dieter. How are you, sir? 
Yes, here. I missed my Beethoven introduction. Oh, uh, wait, uh, we've got it. Hang on one second. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There you go, David. Wow. So, Dieter, what Obviously, you... Beethoven was deaf, so... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about louder. the volume on that. Anyway, uh, as usual, I learned something. I belong to several uh, associations, and I must admit, I have no, absolutely no idea of what we were talking about in the last hour. Uh, the other thing is, and... Um, and I, I, I'm glad that this came up with the lawsuit against a, um, a an association, the ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. You don't catch me with the acronym, <laughs> please. The ACGIH, uh, I mean, th- that was a good gang. I mean, those were not... Yeah, left-wing or right-wing or any of that. They just try to put out the best available knowledge that was available for the protection of workers. They are doing that since... I have somewhere in my office the first TLV, Threshold Limit Value List. I don't think they called it TLVs at the time. It was about two or three pages long. Can you believe that? And somewhere in 1940-ish, anyway, I contributed, I sent at least $100 from my corporation uh, to ACGIH to defend the lawsuit, which I think was an absolute, I mean, atrocious of what happened over there. And I'm until today appalled that this actually can happen. And I don't give a damn about the Constitution, <laughs> bylaws, all of that. It just doesn't, yeah, yeah. You don't sue Mother Teresa for praying, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me do it. Let me ask a follow-up, Dieter. Um, Steve, sure, please go ahead. Was the, there's a book called The Bioaerosols Assessment and Control, and I'm curious, were there any lawsuits over that one? I don't. I don't know. I always, I'm the first, you, yo, Joe, you know me. You know that I'm the first one to say when I don't know something, I don't know. I don't know whether there was anything over there. The problem was with the threshold limit values, which were misused, many of the people who misused them didn't read the first page of the TLV, the threshold limit value books. <laughs> Well, we, Which I point out to everybody. <laughs> we've got their attorney on the phone here, so let's ask him. Steve, do you know sure. off the top of your head? I don't know of any suits that were brought uh, with regard to that. Okay. Uh, I, I do know, though, that the TLV book that the good doctor had just referred to says in one of its first pages that the TLVs are not supposed to be used as standards. Thank there. you very much. Yes, sir. That's what it says. <laughs> and and yet, you know, they are misused. And I think that the misuse is why some people uh, was, was the basis for some of the lawsuits. Yeah. Uh, in, in Canada, there was a province in Canada that had a regulation that automatically adopted TLVs as mandatory occupational exposure limits uh, in all of the manufacturing operations in the province. Interesting. I didn't know that. Well, let's. Uh, I know they have they have guidelines in Canada. I am well aware of that. I worked with the uh, uh, Paint and Coatings Association from Montreal years ago, and they had guidelines. I didn't know that, but I uh, that is a long time ago. We're running short on time. Thank you, Dr. Wow. We always appreciate you joining us, but we've got to get two quick last questions in. Uh, Cliff? Pleasure every time on Friday. No problem at all. Thanks so. again. We had a good time last night, dear. Thanks for the thanks for dinner. Yeah, uh, Steve. No problem at all. Anytime. You know that. Steve, can you comment on the U.S. Green Building Council's recent class action suit? Uh, yeah. The... Basically, uh, a class action was filed against the U.S. Green Building Council 
claiming two things, uh, claiming that the activities of the association constitute an antitrust violation, and also arguing or alleging that the association was misrepresenting that uh, buildings that were certified uh, as meeting uh, the standards that were established were, in fact, more environmentally friendly than other buildings. And, uh, you know, we took a look at that complaint. Um, on its face, I thought that there were some weaknesses with regard to how the antitrust uh, allegations were pleaded. Uh, I question whether or not they really uh, properly pleaded those allegations, but a court would have to decide that. Uh, as to the other allegations as to misrepresentation, uh, you know, those are questions of fact. Uh, but you have an association, and according to the complaint, the uh, U.S. Green Building Council uh, is, is generating some $60 million a year in revenue. And the allegation was that the uh, standards that they're applying don't really do what they say it's going to do. And it'll be interesting to see how that case progresses. We'll be doing a show on that next week for the listeners that are uh, listening now. We'll have uh, Henry Gifford on, who's the gentleman who was, I believe, the got the whole thing right? started. The instigator, I guess we could say. <laughs> uh, before we go, I've got one quick one. Steve, if it's, if it's too long of an answer, just let me know. Um, can an association... That's you know they've got a board president. Can that same person also serve as the staff president? Is there a problem with that? I mean, can 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 the uh, the the president can the president of the board run run the staff of the association? Yes, I, I don't think there's anything on its face illegal uh, about that happening. But I think uh, you know you raises questions. Uh, you know, is that association? Uh, a non-profit organization, a for-profit organization. Uh, th there are certainly issues that are raised. Okay, thanks for that. And before we go, we always like to ask and uh, give you the last word. Is there anything we missed that you'd like to add? We'll start with Steve and then go to Glenn. No, I enjoyed this, and I think you guys are doing a good thing. Thank you. Uh, Joe and the Z-Man, uh, take care. I enjoyed the program. Uh, thank you. Thank you and can much. we uh, give listeners a... Uh, your uh, website or email address if they have questions? Sure. Uh, I can be reached at S as in Sam Feldman, F like in Frank, E-L-L-M-A-N, at G-K-G-Law, L-A-W, dot com. Okay. Thanks again for joining us, and um, we know you've got to run, but let's get uh, any final comments from Glenn. Um, you know, I think... Um, my final comment would just be that, you know, when I when I go before the uh, annual meeting of my client associations, what I always tell the members is, you know, this is your organization. And when I deliver the financial report, I say, you know, I'm talking about your money, and you have a right to know about this stuff. And you can call the association's office, at least the associations that I represent, and you can ask for a tax return, and we will send it to you. As a matter of fact, we'll tell you where you can find it online. And so I keep, would like to, I guess, have that be my parting message to the listeners. If you belong to an organization, if you pay dues to an organization, uh, and you have questions about the organization and its governance or its finances, you do have the ability to get the information you're seeking. And for folks who are interested in knowing how to do that, uh, you're welcome to contact me. Okay, and what's your contact information, Glenn? Oh, you can reach me at 50 different email addresses, so <laughs> I don't know where to start. But uh, I'll just, uh, you can you can reach me at gfellman, F-E-L-L-M-A-N, at iaqa.org. It's probably the simplest one for people to remember. All right. Well, I want to thank both of you, uh, Attorney Stephen Fellman and Association Executive Glenn Fellman, for joining us here this week on IAQ Radio. It's been a wonderful interview, and we really both appreciate 
having both of you on, uh, Cliff and I, that is. Next week, we do have uh, Henry Gifford on, who we'll call the instigator, I guess, of the USGBC lawsuit. That ought to be interesting. We look forward to that. I want to thank uh, our guest today, of course, um, Austin Novak, uh, Austin Powers Novak, our man at the engineering controls over here. Of course, Dr. Dietrich Wow for joining us, my uh, co-host, the Z-Man, and uh, most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Thanks again for joining us, and come back next week at Friday at noon for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 